You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Just before we turn to God's Word, um, just one or two extra notices again, as Owen did. I, I do welcome any of you who are visiting here. We're glad to have you with us. Um, one correction that has to be made, I, I'm in a, a congregation that, full of people who, who know everything, and when you uh, get something wrong, you have to correct it, and I made a big mistake. That wasn't a Massey Ferguson tractor, because Massey and Ferguson hadn't joined by then. That was a Ferguson. So, <laughs> for all you tractor geeks, I'm really sorry. I apologize about that. Um, uh, the, we mentioned before uh, about Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, there's a DVD entitled Logic on Fire. We're going to show it on Monday, the 10th of October at 7.30. Although this has been organized by the men's reading group, it's for anybody. Uh, the venue will be announced next week, dependent on the number of people who want to come. And there's a sign-up sheet at the door. And also at the door, there's a sign-up sheet for the student hospitality. Uh, please also remember the election of elders and the welcome group. And we're uh, expecting another baby. It's always the case in this congregation. And that is uh, the uh, the Ewarts, and Isla is organizing the meals for them as well. Um, we are going to turn to God's Word and to Isaiah chapter 58. Oh, maybe one other thing I perhaps should have said. Uh, it's always great in the congregation we have people from many different backgrounds, and my three new friends over here who threatened to stand up and shout if I didn't introduce them. Um, and it's great to have, and now I'm sure I've got this wrong, Ignatius from Spain, but Ignacio, is that right? Close. Okay, and Gavin from Zimbabwe, and Jean-Claude Van Damme from uh, Paris. <laughs> or it could just be Jean from Paris. But <laughs> So he dared me. Sorry, Jean. <laughs> you, are, you are welcome. You're all welcome, as you all are. Let's go to God's Word in Isaiah chapter 58. Page 744, shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, 
and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your noon will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. We're going to look at these words and uh, uh, going to look at it in the light of the fact that religion is and can be a very bad thing, actually, a very evil thing. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak this week at a cafe about... Uh, on this subject about religion causing strife. And as I say, I love the variety of people that God brings into your way. And the most interesting questions came from a Russian-Bulgarian Gnostic psychologist. That's true. That's what he was. And he had the most fascinating and interesting uh, questions. But there were people who were saying, well, you know, does it matter what religion? Religion's just good. Well, no, it's not. And even when people say about Christianity... No. And even if you're coming to a church where God's word is being taught, as I hope it is here, and we seek to practice it, yet it's still possible for us to hear things and to agree with things and then somehow for our religion to be false and to be fake. Now, this particular chapter begins with uh, a kind of a call that God tells Isaiah what he has to do. It's a trumpet call. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Don't often hear it here, but occasionally you will go to churches and people go, preach it, preacher. So that's what we're going to try and do. And I, want, I hope that you will get as much from this as I have done. There's a notion here of uh, a Christianity a religion that does not work. Now, verses 1 to 5 indicate that. In these, I think it's important that we grasp this because in these first verses, Isaiah is keen for us to see that we are rebels against a holy God, even if we profess to be religious. Or maybe actually, it might be especially if we profess to be religious. Now, when he's speaking here of the fast days, why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it, um, these were in, in Israel great community days. They were days of mourning for sin and of worship and of prayer. They were national days. Uh, it says sometimes 
This may, would seem strange if this happened today, but can you imagine if Theresa May or Nicola Sturgeon were to announce tomorrow, we are going to have a fast day next week and ask God to bless our nation. That, wouldn't that be absolutely wonderful? And it shows you how far we've gone that that no longer can happen. And yet, during the Second World War, for example, Winston Churchill at least three times called upon the nation to fast and pray. And that's what Israel did. They kept a meticulous religious observance. Day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what was right. Their religion seemed to be God-centered. There was a concern for truth. There was a desire for the lifestyle that goes along with that. They wanted to live by the word of God. They wanted to use what God has given, his ordinances as a means of grace. And yet, and yet, Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? And God's answer, let's go on to this one. Yet on the day, oops, I'll go back one. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and so on. They were like the Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector where the Pharisee comes into the church and prays, Luke 18, 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And he says, I thank you that that I am not like this tax collector. It is hugely possible for you to be here thanking God that you've got his word, thanking God that you're gathered here in worship, thanking God that you're not like the pagans outside or the hypocrites or whatever, and yet for your religion, for your Christianity, to be fake. That's what has been spoken of here. Just a couple of things to mention. For a start, there was a real social ruthlessness. In chapter 1 and verse 15, Isaiah has already said, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Being a Christian should make a phenomenal difference to how you treat people, to how you treat people who work for you, to how you treat other people in your society and in your culture. I love the fact that as you go around Dundee uh, just now, the, the parks are brilliant. But the reason we have those parks, Caird Park and Baxter Park, the reason we have them is because the mill owners who were in Dundee in the 19th century, they did exploit their workers. And they made Brotty Ferry the richest square mile in Europe, and they made this area the poorest, apart from a place in Manchester. But then some of them were converted and became Christians. And in order to help alleviate the conditions of their workers, they gifted Baxter Park and Caird Park to the city. Because when you become a Christian, it should make an enormous difference as to how you act in all of your relationships. It's a sign of godlessness to be ruthless against other people, to be exploitative of other people, to cheat at business, to humiliate other people, to treat other people with disrespect, and also fighting. This was a very self-centered community And a self-centered community that's hungry ends up 
fighting. In fact, their worship, which should have brought out the best in people, brought out the worst. I know of almost no reason stronger than this for people wanting to turn away from the Christian faith. Even the, even the question of suffering. But sometimes what you see in the church is shameful because you see Christians uh, abusing one another, gossiping about one another. You see political infighting. You see all these different things. And it, it, it's, it's really devastating. It's devastating when you see non-Christians behaving better sometimes than Christians. In the New Testament, James says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's so easy, so easy to begin the Christian life well, but to finish it badly. It's so easy to live off the memories of the past and not to know the presence of the Lord in your life today. It's so easy, in other words, for your life to be just an outward show. They approach God. They want God to approach them. But their motives and their behavior and the results of their religious worship show that it's just an outward show. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself. They outwardly conformed, but inwardly they were far away from God. Jesus himself quoted Isaiah. These people worship me with their hearts. Worship me with their lips, rather. But their hearts are far from me. Sometimes when we sing praise, you can tell your heart's not in it. Who knows? Sometimes, and then other times you can tell, oh, the heart is in it. And then lots of times we don't know. It could be that as I look out on you, you could be singing with the most joyous expression on your face and I go, wow. And yet inwardly, you could be as dead as could be. Because you could be moved by the music, you could be enjoy the singing and the circumstances, but you could be as dead as can be. Now, let me just back off a little bit and say that I look in a mirror and I know that's true for me. I could stand here and preach the word of God and could preach it with passion and yet inwardly be as dead as could be. And you never really know that. Only God knows that. But the point is that he does know. In Revelation, it speaks of Jesus standing before the church with eyes like blazing fire. It's not kind of some kind of horror story. It's just saying he sees, he knows better than we know ourselves. We need to be careful because religious duties can so easily degenerate into superstition and ritual and into just kind of moralism. I listened to a service this morning and it was kind of good and nice. And I mean, it's from Northern Ireland and, you know, it was great to hear the Irish accents and the singing was good and so on. And, but as I listened to it, I was struggling. I was thinking, why are you finding this so difficult? And why are you being so judgmental? And can't you just enjoy it? And isn't it wonderful that the Bible is being spoken? And then I, I think I realized what had happened. For me, if you'd taken Jesus out of that service, it would still have been exactly the same. It was just moralism. Evangelical moralism, if you like. 
People say, oh, yes, we believe the Bible. Oh, yes, this. But I don't know. For me, there was just, there was no, it, it was all about us. It wasn't about God and who God is and what God wants and what God sees. And that's the religion that's being complained about here, a religion that doesn't work, that's outwardly, almost outwardly perfect, but there is something that is wrong. Sometimes in this church, in other churches, in other situations, you become aware of there's something wrong. There's a, there's a block. There's something not right. There's something not working. There's something going on. And we're not all knowing and we don't know. And then only years later sometimes you discover what that block was. Sometimes you say there's something wrong and you wonder about who it is or what it is and God shows you that it's you. And that's a most humbling but also a most wonderful thing. When the Lord shows us our unknown sins, our hidden sins, when he makes us realize that uh, it's us. You know, we might say, oh, that can't happen. Human beings, surely we would know. Just think of the prophet David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Do you know, he probably got to a point where he was convinced he'd done nothing wrong. And Nathan, the prophet, had to come and tell him a parable, which he got really wound up about, and he was really angry at the, the injustice of the rich man taking the poor man's lamb. And then Nathan just pointed and said, you're the man. You're the one. Sometimes God looks at us and says, you're the one. And, and it, it, is, it is very, very humbling. We should, I believe all of us should pray, Lord, keep me away from a mere profession of religion. Grant that it would be real. So, Let's go on. Let's look at some of the principles of religion that actually works or fruits of religion. Now, what's interesting here is that there's a combination of social justice and worship, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. I think the basic point here is that true religion coming from a real relationship with God results in better relationships with our fellow human beings. Now, please note, it's not saying if you're nice to other people, then you get closer to God. It's saying that if you are closer to God, that will be evidenced in your relationships with other people. And I'm sorry, uh, uh, somebody asked last week, um, does David like Calvin? Because I quote him quite a lot. Well, yeah, I, I, I quote him uh, because it's just great stuff. And he says this. The, he says, God says this because the love which we owe to our neighbors cannot be sincerely cultivated unless when we love them in God. Now that's a most amazing thing. It's a most amazing idea and statement that the best way for you to love your neighbors is to love God, and because of that, you then love them. Now he gives four fruits, and I'll just mention them. First of all, that kind of real religion, real faith, real relationship with Jesus Christ means that we fight injustice and help the oppressed. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? The Bible was concerned with freedom long before it became the fashionable buzzword of today's society. 
Our concern is that people should be free. My chains fell off. My heart was free. We should be concerned about structures that enslave people and sins that enslave people. We should be concerned about child trafficking. We should be concerned about unjust and exploitative uh, economic systems. We should be concerned about societies which oppress people. We should be concerned where there are a significant number of women and indeed some men who are subject to domestic abuse. That should concern us. But all the systems that enslave people, that should concern us. We are always as Christians going to be fighting injustice and seeking to help the oppressed. Not because it's the trendy thing to do, not because of various political views that we may have, but just simply because this is who our God is. And there is no point in us engaging in worship and praising God if we are not prepared to act in the way that he asks us to. But it goes on. We are to share with the poor and take care of our family. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And then later on in verse 10, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. This is not just working on the structures of society, which I would suggest the first one is about, but it's about providing for the basic needs. Again, I'm sorry, I quote Mr. Calvin, Jean Calvin, uh, from Lyon, not Paris. Uh, Well, he was from Paris as well, actually. Good Frenchman. The sum of the whole discourse is this, says Calvin, that in vain do men serve God if they only offer to him trivial and bare ceremonies, and that this is not the right and proper worship of God, who rigidly commands and enjoins us to lead an upright and innocent life with our neighbors, willing to gi- willingly to give ourselves and our labors to them, and to be ready to assist them cheerfully whenever it is necessary. In other words, Calvin is saying what John says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's also given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. In other words, you could come and you can sing praise to God and you can read the word and you can pray. And yet... If you do not live an upright and innocent life, do not seek to help your neighbors, your Christianity is utterly meaningless. In that sense, faith without works is dead. When James says that, he's not saying you're justified by works, he's just saying your faith isn't real. Because if you've got real faith in Jesus, real faith in God, then you are changed. And that shows. So you share with the poor and you look after your own family. It is possible, says one man, to be socially clear-sighted and domestically short-sighted. How many great social reformers have not really bothered about their own families? It's fascinating reading biographies of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Great heroes. But then see how they treated their own families. And you begin to wonder. I wonder how many people who are always on about social justice... What about their own families? And what about us? 
If we don't look after our own families, we're told we're worse than an unbeliever. Yes, people can idolize their families. They can put them in place of God. That's wrong. But we can also go the other way. We can say, well, whatever is given that I was supposed to give to my family, I'm giving it to God, and, uh, and that's korban, that's justice, that's worship. And God says, no, it's not. You share with the poor. You look after your own family. You know, I think it's an absolutely lovely Christian witness uh, is when you see an older couple who've been Christians for many years, and maybe one of them's struggling with illness and the other isn't, and without a word of doubt or question, the one doesn't even think about whether they're going to stay and help and care for. They're going to because they are believers, because that's the right thing to do. I know somebody who, whose whole life was completely changed. Their whole work and ministry was completely changed because of the sickness of their wife. And yet, it wasn't because they were serving Christ in caring for their spouse. We are to share with the poor. We are to look after our own family. Here's an interesting one. See, I don't think any of us would have, made, would have taken these as signs of where we're at spiritually. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, what's that about? Here, it's referring about our personal behavior when we use the greatest weapon God has given us, our tongues, in order to poison the well of relationships with other people. Gossip. Accusation, subtle and not so subtle, innuendo. And God says, if you worship me, the kind of fast I'm looking for, the kind of worship I'm looking for, is that you stop it. Stop your gossip, stop your moaning, stop your complaining, stop your yakking about other people, stop undermining. You may be perfectly right in your assessment of them, but you don't know, and I don't know. Only God ultimately knows. It is um, a key thing that each of us has to look, and sometimes we have to say, Lord, we have to confess that what we have said and what we have done has not been great. And then right worship, verses 13 and 14, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day. Now again, that's really strange because we've had uh, fighting injustice, helping the oppressed, sharing with the poor, looking after your own family, stop gossiping, and then keep the Sabbath. And most, I think, Christians will go, well, what's that got to do with us? We don't keep the Sabbath. That was a Jewish thing. Maybe some of you were brought up in a Sabbatarian church and instantly your hackles are up. Oh, I remember those days. We didn't hang out washing on a Sunday. You know, we didn't do this and we didn't do that. And now, Sunday's just a normal day for most people, even Christians. So, what does this have to do with us? Why is this, in particular, set as a test for God's people in the Old Testament? Does it apply in the New? Well, I know Christians who will love the first 12 verses of Isaiah 58 and hate the last two. And I know other Christians who love the last two and hate the first 12, or at least in terms of their actions. But I think... The idea behind this, first of all, it's, it's not so much just about a day, it's about the whole idea of worshiping God. 
about the day being set apart for the Lord. And here's the interesting thing. It's not about personal preference. It's a delight, not just a duty. Those Christians who say, well, we no longer have a Sabbath in the New Testament. Okay, you have a problem, and here's why. Because if the Old Testament was pointing to Christ and everything in the Old Testament is a kind of foreshadow of that, so you've got circumcision becoming baptism and you've got the Passover becoming the Lord's Supper, what does the Sabbath become? And if, as Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so it was a gift for us, how have we got to a state where we no longer need a Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of worship? Now, I believe that will be true in heaven, because in heaven it will be an eternal Sabbath. But I think it's a mistake for us to see the Lord's day as having just disappeared. The Sabbath, in the New Testament, the Sabbath does become the Lord's day. There are changes, but the idea is basically the same. That it is a day which we take apart from the world to worship God, to, to rest, to come away from our normal business. And it should be a delight. It should be a foretaste of heaven. It should be the best day of the week. Now, uh, for me it is. I hope for you it is. But for me, it absolutely is. I don't know what I would do without Sundays. And it's not because it's my job. Uh, Please don't misunderstand that. Uh, For me, being together with God's people and worshiping with God's people and just coming away from all the stuff that's going on And just being able to to focus is a wonderful thing. You and I, um, well, maybe we don't. Some of you will have uh, one of these apps on your phone that's a fitness app. And see, you've got one that says you've got to do 10,000 steps in a day. Uh, Bad news is, according to a survey out this week, that's not enough. It has to be 12,000 steps in a day. So all of you who are feeling really self-righteous, you've got a lot to catch up on. Um, But imagine if you had a spiritual app. I don't think you can, but imagine if you did and, and you kind of were looking at what we were doing. It would tell you to store up God's word. It would tell you on this day, on this day, find your joy in the Lord and your fellowship and so on. Yeah, of course you can top up during the week and of course different things will happen and of course you, every day is God's day if you like. But in this fallen world we, in which we live and with our fallen conditions, it is just great to be able to come and somebody did say to me once, church was like a filling station. They just get filled up. And I think, well, good. That's actually not a bad analogy. And notice how it was to be celebrated. They were to honor God, not doing as they please or just their own thing. And they were to speak God's words. And he uses a word there that's quite unusual, comes out of Deuteronomy 18.20. A prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I've not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. And you know what's being said there? God is saying he cares about what we say, especially in fellowship, especially in praise, especially when we are together. And it really shouldn't just be idle chit-chat. We need to hear God's word on God's day. Lord, what are you saying? Lord, what are you saying? Because there is nothing more pleasing to God than sincere worship from the heart. And there is nothing more abhorrent than false. And that's why 
we need to grasp a lesson that we need reminded of again and again. Worship is not entertainment designed to please the worshipers. If you say, I'm going to go to this church because I like this, 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 and this, then one day you won't like that, 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 and that, and you'll like something else, something else, and you'll end up going to another church for that reason. And I want to suggest to you that such an emphasis on the externals indicates something that is wrong. We can do outwardly what God commands and still be far from him, which I think is the point of the whole thing. So it's important that if we're going to have a real faith in Jesus Christ, that's seen in how we treat others. And it's important that we take time to worship him. And I would argue that there are enormous benefits from that. Let me just list what they are from the chapter. First of all, light, healing, righteousness, and glory. Your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. He uses a word for light and healing. When he puts those together, it's like a growth of new skin over an old sore and wound. And you may be really, really hurting. But when you seek God in worship and when you seek to serve him through serving other people, it's funny, those wounds, they get healed. When you come looking for healing for your wound, they don't get healed. But when you turn your eyes away from yourself and look to God and look to his people, there's a difference. The righteousness and glory speaks about the righteousness being worn like clothing. And the glory is the glory of the Lord. And that's at the back. And it's almost as though God's saying, I've got your back. You don't have to worry. I'm there. And more than that, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. The, God's people have been saying, we've been, we've been fasting and we've been praying and we've been doing this and you're not hearing us. And God said, yes, that's because you've been acting unjustly and it's because your worship is not real. But if you truly humble yourself, if you come before me and if you do away with this yoke of oppression, then you will be answered. It's a bit like if you know somebody who's really famous or uh, somebody who's very important or thinks they're very important and you want to get hold of them and they say to you, here's my personal email. You know, it's like, I don't know, the queen. Um, David, there you go, there's my personal email. You don't have to bother with the secretaries and all that kind of stuff. Um, for some of you, uh, that would be uh, really quite cool. Um, I think for me, it would be quite cool if I could just have the queen's personal mobile number and text her. You know, I'd, I'd be tempted to show off to you. Um, well, we kind of have that with God. He's not saying, talk to my people, go through my secretary. He's saying, you can come into my presence. You don't have to bribe your way. You don't have to go through intermediaries because the intermediary we have is Jesus Christ. And he's given us access into the throne room. Sometimes we don't have answered prayer because we don't ask. And sometimes we don't have answered prayer because we don't have the relationships which, which enables us to walk into the presence of the living God. So we try and go through religion in other ways. Another great benefit, verse 11 and 12. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. 
We may be in the darkness, but his hands hold us. We are not on our own. It's just so wonderful. Lord, what is your way? And the Lord says, I will show you my way. I will show you. Satisfaction, when everything's bleak, seems bleak, when everything seems dark and empty, the Lord will satisfy. They will come and shout, says Jeremiah 31, 12, for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain and the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. They'll be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. We don't have in the Bible this dichotomy between the rich things that we've got from uh, material things and food and so on and spiritual things because the two are interconnected. Jesus says, I will, he will drink of the water I give you and never thirst. There's always incoming resource because some of you are running on empty because you built up a stock and you've just been pouring out and pouring out and then dripping out and dripping out and not taking in. But when you come on the Lord's day and you worship with God's people and when you do what God says, it, he, he fills you. He fills you. And there's renewal and rebuilding. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. What a great name. Repairer of broken walls and restorer of streets with dwellings. I'm not sure I'd name any of our children that, but that's, that's, that was the name. There's restoration and renewal in relationships, in marriages, in homes, and in churches. When we come before God in real worship, acknowledging Him and seeking His will and His way and His heart and serving His people, there's renewal and there's restoration and there's rebuilding. And of course, there is joy. Let me go on to the last one. Then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is back to the delight of the Sabbath. In the old Sabbatarian days in Scotland, sometimes, I, I, I did actually hear this once, it's not just apocryphal. Somebody was smiling and laughing, and they were given a row, stop it, it's the Sabbath. Why? It's the day for wearing black. It's the day for being gloomy. It's the day for being miserable. Now look, some of you naturally look miserable. That's fine. That's the way that you are. But it doesn't mean that you're holy because you look miserable any more than some of you are naturally effervescent and, and, and bubbly and so on. It doesn't mean that you're holy. But the Sabbath itself should be a joy and a delight. And if Sunday is the most miserable day of the week, there's something wrong with your Christianity. It should be the most joyful day of the week. And I love it. Do you know what I love when I hear from, about the children? And I love this, that in general, our children are growing up with this. You're not getting the children waking up on Sunday morning and going to their parents, oh, mom, do we have to go to church? I remember one parent telling me, this remained unnamed, that every day their daughter woke up and said, is it church day? Is it church day? No, it's school day. Oh, dash. <laughs> Now, school can be a delight as well, but I just thought, isn't that wonderful? But it's a shame, isn't it? That, that, that joyful anticipation of the child. And I'm not kidding myself. They're not thinking, oh, great, I'm going to get to hear David speak for 40 minutes or whatever. That's not what they're thinking. But neither is it just about crafts and everything else or whatever they do. They're meeting their friends. They're being in God's presence. All these different things. Who knows how God is working in those children's lives? But we need that. 
We need that sense of anticipation and joy. I joyed when to the house of God. Go up, they said to me. Why are you looking so happy? Because I'm going to worship God. That's why I look so happy. You will find your joy. And he uses the, the way the words are, says you'll bring joy upon yourselves. In other words, when you come to worship God, when you're concerned about what God's concerned about and not obsessed with yourself, that is the way you bring joy upon yourself. You feast. Verse 14, you ride on the heights. I will feast at the table spread for me. The sovereign Lord is my strength, says Habakkuk. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. You know what it's like sometimes in worship? Not always, but sometimes for you. I'll tell you what it's like. It's like you've got a drone. And that drone can fly above all your troubles and all the difficulties that you are struggling in. And you get a God's eye view of what's going on and what's happening. And it makes everything completely different. The perspective is completely different. The house of Jacob, verse 1 is we're, they're told, cry out to the house of Jacob their sins. And then verse 14, but you will feast. You will feast of your father, Jacob. So you and I, those of us who are Christians, I think there's not one of us here that doesn't need to repent and ask the Lord to reveal to us his ways and to reveal to us as much as we can take the state of our own hearts and ask the Lord and plead with the Lord that we would not be hypocrites. We would not be those going through the motions. We would not be those who are sermon tasters or worship tasters or religious hypocrites, but that we would be those whose heart's desire is to worship God, whose soul pants and thirsts after the living God. And if you're not a Christian and you're thinking, what, what is this all about? It is about a joy that at this moment in time you can have no idea of but if you come to know Jesus, you will begin to grasp what it really is. It's about a world that's turned upside down because people come to love, love Jesus and because they love him, they do not turn away from their fellow human beings and they spend themselves on behalf of the oppressed. If you're not a Christian, come and join the revolution. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the many blessings we have received from your hand, that we have so many reasons to, to give you thanks for the food that you provide, both physically and spiritually. In every way, we have so much to be thankful for. We also have so much to confess. Lord, those of us here who feel that we have been playing at religion, that we have been going through the motions and maybe nobody knows it except us. Have mercy upon us and grant that we would turn to you and that we would know that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and forgive us. And may we know renewal in our own hearts and lives. For we ask it in your name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. 
visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.